is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, very good evening. Good evening to you, Graham. Uh, Robert Redford, what a star when you think about it. He was probably the hunkiest guy on the planet um, for a good bit of his career, and he's retiring now. 2018, there's a movie out. Um, we'll hear about it uh, from you, and we'll talk a bit about his um, career, James. Yeah, look, I think, you know, if you look at him in, in comparison to uh, to his contemporaries, you think of his old Butch and Sundance body, Paul Newman. Paul Newman went off and got involved with race cars and uh, his own brand of sauces, I guess. He got yeah. a, bit, a bit distracted by that, maybe. Warren Beatty got distracted by all sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, he's kind of enjoyed it, and he's sort of, I guess, given back, hasn't he? The Sundance Film Festival is all Robert Redford. He's been the executive producer behind so many things. People have often, I guess he's a bit like Jane Fonda, some people who haven't always agreed with his politics, some people who haven't always agreed with some of his decision-making, but he leaves behind, if this is to be his last film, as it seems, um, then he leaves behind such a legacy in terms of particular his acting, but also producing and directing and that kind of thing. Yeah, we'll go into that, and there's some remarkable stuff that he has done that will have an effect well after he's dead too. But anyway, uh, the movie is called The Old Man and a Gun. Yes, it is. And it's based on a true story, although it's very much a kind of warm, gentle, fictionalised version of it. So there was a guy called, uh, I think his name was Forrest Tucker, mm. and he was known uh, throughout the US as being kind of the gentleman bank robber. Okay. And he had, a couple, he had a few mates who were kind of tougher, but he was famous for the number of banks he robbed, but also the number of escapes he made from prison. Oh, well, this <laughs> is just classic Redford, really, if you're either looking at The Sting or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Anyway, Absolutely. here's the trailer for it. It's a two and a half minute song. We can live through that, I think, James. It'll give you of an idea. It's pretty script-driven. Hey, excuse me. Need some help? No, I'm good. Let me take a look. You know anything about cars? That's Sissy Spicy. Uh, no, not really. So, uh, what did you say you do? Well, that's a secret. And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank, and instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window, and you just walk in, real calm, so you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery, and you show her the gun, like this, and you say, we want you to get hurt, because I like you, I like you a lot, so don't go breaking my heart now, okay? <sighs> You're not serious. Uh, excuse me. I'd like to open up an account. Well, great. What type of account do you have in mind? This kind. Shows the gun. This kind. You said he was armed. He had a gun. You saw it. Well, he was also sort of a gentleman. He was very polite. He seemed like a nice enough fellow. Look at that. Is he smiling? My 
five states. 93 robberies. In two years. You think you can catch him? Yeah, I won't lie. I'd love to slap the cuffs on him myself. Let's hope I get the chance. Try another city, baby. Another town. He spent his whole life locked up, except for the times that he broke out. Somebody should have told him to quit while he was in. Well, you find something you love. exactly where I'm supposed to be. You're never exactly where you're supposed to be, are you? Now, whenever I close the door, I think, is this the last time I'll ever have a chance to do whatever that thing was? You know what I do when the door closes? I jump out the window. <laughs> Living is a gamble, baby. Loving's much the same. Wherever I sat down with him once, and I said, surely there's an easier way to make a living. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living. Oh, well, yeah, an appropriate swan song for Robert Redford. Yes, I think it is. I think it very much fits in with the kind of uh, charming anti-hero, if you like, or the kind of, you know, the, the gentleman bad guy, if you like. Um, you know, it just it just has that feel. And I think, I mean, it's a project that Redford himself has kind of, uh, you know, generated, and he just needed to find the right director, and he found one, and a guy called David Lowry, who then himself managed to persuade Redford to come to New Zealand. Hmm to uh, do Pete's Dragon a couple of years ago. Oh, almost as exciting as a Markle visit. Um, <laughs> exactly. I lo- what I quite liked at the beginning of the movie is you get this um, thing that comes up, usually where it says, this is based on a true story. <laughs> this, this one says, most of this is true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, nice. And that's the thing. I mean, uh, I got the opportunity to speak to the director last week. He was actually in the country attending the big screen symposium uh, in Auckland. And he was saying that, yeah, you know, he started out trying to make a kind of gritty, you know, based on a true story kind of thing. And it just didn't fit. And it didn't fit with having Robert Redford as a leading man. Mm. So, you know, it's that old saying uh, from... Uh, from the 70s or whatever, if you uh, have a choice between the truth and the legend, print the legend. Yep, yep. And there's a thing about these depictions that Robert Redford has made, not entirely his own, but it really is his meat and bread, isn't it? It's that. It just seems easy. It just yeah. you just it just draws the audience in, and you just go along for the ride, and and it leaves you conflicted about whether you are behind him or behind the authorities. And and he's got Casey Affleck as the cop who's up against him, who is um, who the, the the policeman is still alive actually and uh, so the writer director David Lowry went and talked to him about this kind of thing but Casey Affleck never met him and so um, so so it's kind of a fictionalised version of, of the policeman as well but it's you know it's again these kind of two dogged people who uh, you know have their ideas about truth and justice and you know in some ways it's almost like that Michael Mann film Heat with De Niro and Pacino but told in a gentle Robert Redford style. Okay, yeah. yeah. And this is the sort of character that made him so sexy to everybody. Um, The dangerous, rugged stranger on the edge. That's right. And he he looks like a Ginger Kennedy, really, doesn't he? I think that's it, isn't it? I mean, you know, he first kind of burst onto the scene in the 60s, started out in TV doing everything from, like, you know, the Untouchables to the Virginian. Mm. Um, and, and then, of course, he was picked up by the likes of um, 
uh, you know, Broadway playwrights like Neil Simon, etc. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when he was in things like Barefoot in the Park opposite Jane Fonda and then kind of Butch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, I guess, really sort of really set the tone for, for those kind of roles that you're talking about. And, yeah, The Sting, I have to admit, is probably one of my favourite movies of the 70s just because of the sheer enjoyment of it. Yeah, it's marvellous, isn't it? And I, I'm such a doofus idiot. Um, he started the Sundance Festival, which is now an institution. I never made the freaking connection. <laughs> it's Butch Cassidy and, hello, the Sundance Kid, I'm... Uh, yeah, and that is such a massive thing, and it's such a celebration of independent film. I mean, yeah. I think I think Taika Waititi actually owes a lot of his career to that, particularly the connections he's made, and you know they've really helped him sort of uh, put himself on the map and get out there. And and of course, this past well, in the past few years, Melanie Linsky has had a number of projects where she's been the star and she's won awards there. And then of course, Thomas and Mackenzie, uh, our latest acting. Star. Mm-hmm. Um, it was her film that debuted at Sundance this year that really put her on the map. Yeah. Um, but but getting back to Redford and his acting performances, he also was able to turn in the seventies when those kind of conspiracy paranoid thrillers turned up. So you think of Three Days of the Condor from a fictional version. And in fact, Sky have apparently got a TV version of that coming shortly. Oh. Um, and all the President's Men. Of course, yeah, massive. And um, as a director as well, no slouch. Yes, that's true. And 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 you, if you look at his um, look at his uh, oeuvre, if you like, uh, and his acting career, he disappeared for a few years because he he went and made uh, a few movies. Of course, Ordinary People won an Oscar, somewhat mm. controversially, I mm, guess. But mm. you know, it was one of the things that at the time it was a a big popular. But you know, it's things like uh, the Milagro Benfield War and A River Runs Through It. They they had a kind of Redford sensibility. He starred in them. The one of the probably the one that he's directed that would be my favourite would have to be Quiz Show. Yeah, he got some uh, gong for that too, didn't he? Yeah, look, I think that was there was just something about that, you know, mm-hmm. this um, moment in time. Uh, you know, it was kind of another loss of innocence kind of American story, and that's where this kind of liberal bent. Yeah, and know, people have talked about that quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's cor- corruption within Quiz Show stuff. It was was it Jeopardy? Uh, no, I don't... Oh, surely it wasn't Jeopardy. No, I think it was a radio quiz. It was pretty oh, Jeopardy right, days. Yeah, yeah. Um, my father was in a radio quiz show in the 50s that I think was something very similar to this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. You croots uh, are all over the place with this sort of stuff. Quiz Kids, if you find it in the Radio New Zealand archive or whatever. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. It was pre-W3 and it's academic. They used to have radio shows. Because your brother was on Krypton Factor. <laughs> he was, yes. That's Did he right. fall when, off the, the the flying fox into under, the... No, he ended up underneath the pool at the bottom of the, you know, slidey bit where you go into the mud. Covered in mud. He actually submerged oh, over his head. Brilliant. Superb. That tracksuit dis- virtually destroyed our washing machine. It was so full of burning <laughs> mud. But we, we digress rather beautifully there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he kind of, I don't know, in the end I think he he got a bit disillusioned uh, with Hollywood and directing. Um, you know, The Horse Whisperer worked really well. Uh, the Legend of Bag of Vance was le- 
Yes, well received. Lion for Lambs, which was, you know, one of his comeback vehicles. People kind of said, oh, this is just liberal, you know, preaching to a certain audience, and it didn't really, mm. you know, happen much. And so so he kind of almost with, withdrew himself uh, from that sphere. And, he, and, you know, he's just been uh, doing a lot of his Sundance stuff and doing the occasional kind of acting job. Yeah, well, he's 82, for goodness sake. So, yeah, you know, right. ha- hats off. Well, and, we, and you look, you know, Connery buggered off well before that. Um, and Newman was doing kids' cartoons, essentially, towards the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, so look, it's been, it's been an, a very impressive career. Look, anyone, anyone who can play Bill Bryson, Dan Rather... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ike the Horse and Charlotte's Web has got to be uh, something in particular. Yeah. Well, other than his body of work, that Sundance Festival really is a thing now. That's stuck. So good on him. And we're, are we getting some Sundance feed here in New Zealand? So as part of, you know, the re- revolutionising of the uh, media landscape, yeah, we're getting Sundance Now, which is essentially um, the Sundance's streaming channel. I believe it's coming before the end of the year, as well as a horror service, which I think is part of the same organisation. I'm not sure, called Shudder. Um, So, yeah, so people will be able to, uh, you know, take their pick of mainly movies, but there's a few uh, TV shows in there as well, including some Australian stuff. So, you know, it it also gives, I guess, Kiwis uh, another potential platform to sell their stuff to, too. So, you know. All right. Oh, well, hats off, Robert Redford. This is your last movie, and it seems bang on, Redford for casting. So, good one. Absolutely. Even at the age of 82. Okay. All right. Well, he's, he's a good-looking 82. The Ginger Kennedy, I'm going to call him from now on. <laughs> Righto. Um, James Crute, thank you very much. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... He's had a snoot in the books all week, answering, or at least attempting to. Uh, What can be known of things about the English language, words, their origin and meaning that you've tabled, either through the Facebook page or you can email, uh, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. The email form is clearly labelled. Max, hello. How's your week been? Good evening. Oh, it's been fine, but today I've had an excitement because a new, a new word has been discovered. Oh, good heavens. So new that we haven't had time to, to sort of investigate it, but I thought I'd tell you about it. There's this new word. It's called manopause. Oh, I mean, the so meaning, a male version of menopause. Well, yes. So then the meaning is sort of clearish. Manopause is a word invented to describe that time in a male life Mm. when some kind of hormone therapy may be either needed or may be obvious. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. It's just called the portmanteau word, isn't it? It is indeed. Well, uh, yeah, only just because menopause, on which it's based, is not actually a portmanteau word, but menopause is a very curious and very unusual word, and we will be interested, won't we, to see how long it lasts. Mm. But the real word of the week that I wanted to mention is 
caucus. Right. We've been hearing a lot about that in the last mm -hmm. few weeks. Now, in general, New Zealand's parliamentary structure is based on traditional structures which evolved in Britain, known there as the Westminster system and known elsewhere as the Westminster system. To a very large extent, this is true, but there have been influences from other sources. And one of the exceptions in the use is the use in New Zealand of the word describing the meeting of political representatives in order to coordinate policy, which in this country that meeting is called caucus, and it has no connection whatever with Britain's Westminster system. Caucus is a very rare example of a word in common use in New Zealand, uh, which listeners will be relieved to know doesn't come from Latin, because nearly everything else does. No, caucus is a rare example, even more rare. It's a word from the languages of the Native Americans. No, it's yes. not. No, it's yes. not. Max is yes. making stuff up again. So I'll continue. In the language of the native Algonquin tribe, the word caucus means um, advisor or counsellor. And the anglicised version of that word eased into use in America during the 1600s, and it has been in use in New Zealand since 1876, functioning as a collective term for all members from the same political party and the meetings they have in private to consider and develop party matters. You won't hear the word used in England because they don't use Algonquin words, but the term not being British Westminster nomenclature can be heard in Australia, Canada, South Africa, and surprisingly, Nepal. Really? Yes. Nepal? But, yes. Don't ask me why. They dip their toe in the caucus. But you just stood there shrieking that we couldn't be using an American Indian word, but we are. Well, I suppose <laughs> if a caucus has smokes the peace pipe while having a powwow and a teepee to bury the hatchet, yes. it, it might just fit. <laughs> well, yes, we've certainly used all those others. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Oh, good on the Native American Indians. There they go. They've scored one uh, for the English language. What does carrying a torch mean? This is a phrase, isn't it? Do you know what it means? Have you heard it? Well, supporting someone's cause uh, yourself to help them along. Usually a romantic situation. Oh, really? Yes. It's usually said when someone is attracted to somebody else, but, but the a person who is attracted is referred to as carrying a torch because there doesn't seem to the observer that there's much hope in a relationship taking oh. place. Oh. Now, it's faded from use a bit, so I can understand that you haven't heard it because you're so young, but it was used very much since it first surfaced in America in the 1920s. Oh. And it's still... And it's still heard, in a uh, context you might know, Graham, it, in the uh, descriptions of songs about the lovelorn called torch songs. Oh. That's related to carrying a torch. Now, the only known explanation for the idiom, carrying a torch for someone you fancy, comes from a practice way, way, way back in the history of ancient Greece and Rome. Because on the night of a wedding, dry hawthorn twigs were tied into a bundle. They then would be lit in the fire at the bride's home to carry the flames to light the fire in the hearth of her new home, in the groom's home. Now, one version of the legend tells... Even if it's a hot day. Even if what? 
even if it's a hot day and you don't feel like a fire. It was at night. The weddings were usually at night. We didn't have hot nights in Rome. Yes, and they still went ahead with the custom. All right. Now, one, one version of the legend tells that the young boy who would carry this flaming bundle, the torch, would lead the bride from her home to the groom's home, which would then be her new home, and the flaming came to symbolise the newly formed connection between two people in love, now married. So, curiously, after several thousand years, the image of someone attracted to someone else but not being encouraged is linked to the ancient gesture of a torch being carried alongside a woman about to be married to her love, but the person carrying the torch is not the person she's going to marry. She's on her way to marry somebody else. So, in modern times, when someone is said to be carrying a torch for someone or something, mm. it means that they're, they're the loser in the situation. Oh. It summons the image of a person suffering the pangs of love or the pangs of support, which aren't widely recognised. Sadly, this person is not heading for a wedding. And one of the side survivors of the same legend is the use of the phrase torch songs because they describe the sad outpourings of the heartbroken once described as, quote, those who are lucky enough to be heartbroken but talented and can channel these feelings into powerful music. Oh. There's another theory, but it's not taken seriously, but it's my job to cover these things, so I'll tell you the one which is not believed. Some people think that carrying a torch arose from the long ago not wide practice of citizens in support of a candidate for public office forming an evening procession carrying flaming torches to arouse attention and support the person whose credentials they wish to draw attention to. But this doesn't actually fit the accepted image that carrying a torch indicates that the person is not making any progress in where his heart wants to go. So the ancient Roman explanation does, I think, make more sense. All right. I was just trying to think of really, really sad heartbreak songs. There must be billions of them, but billions, just trying to think and think of, of a really, really almost, good one. One could almost say that the proportion, the majority of popular songs are heartbreak songs. I thought the majority of them would be, over the years, would have been, I'm in love and this is really great. Yes, well, I don't think we can... We'd have to do a lot of homework to, mm. to, to satisfy that. Um, Alone again, naturally. Oh, that's pretty sad. Yes, of course, that's one of the worst ones. It's, I think it's the saddest song in the world. Yes. Well, it's definitely... It's not actually... It's heartbreak upon heartbreak upon heartbreak. He climbs yes. to the tower, he's going to throw himself off and talks about his dad who's died, God rest his soul, and his girlfriend uh, didn't arrive at the altar for the wedding. It, it gets worse. There's dozens like that. That. And I norm- think that's the champion. Well, yes, I, I tend to agree, but they are normally referred to as torch songs okay. be- because the person's carrying the torch, but the, the person he's carrying it for mm. isn't in love with him. Oh, it's a hell of a torch. Now, we have a question for you. Uh-huh. Put yourself, Graham, in a New Zealand hotel, uh-huh. and among the things... China. You- no, 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 New Zealand hotel. No, most, uh, the answer to most questions these days is just China. I'm getting in early. Well, you're wrong, because I want you to put into a New Zealand hotel and stand still. Yes. And among the things you found when you moved into this New Zealand hotel was an object called a recovery body bar, which was described as not containing ester of parahydroxypenzoic acid or parabens, nor any mineral oils, but had ground olive stones, enriched almond oil and bergamot, and no animals were ever used for any testing. Now, what do you think it was? 
It sounds like a facial scrub. Not far off. Some sort of skin thing you yes. put on to pretend that you... It's, it makes you feel good because it, it ends. Would you believe it's just a block of soap? Is that it, really? That's it, really. Oh, far out. It's called a That's recovery body bar. A recovery body bar? Don't you love it? <laughs> Unbefrickin'-leavable. Well, <laughs> I thought it was worth a try. Oh, oh, to be in that marketing department. Yes, What do we say about our soap? But who wants a job where your work is scorned? Yeah. I mean, recovery body bar... Well, you'd have a bloody good laugh at the pub afterwards, wouldn't you? Recovery body bar is a joke. (laughs) However, let us not, let us not be too severe, Graham, because in three or four weeks' time, we might mind it's taken over. Right, the recovery body bar. The recovery body bar. Ma'am, I've run out of recovery body bar. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think... I'm not betting on it, Max. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll take a short commercial break. Well, they're all the same size, really. Uh, Max, returning to address some of your questions. Scramble, champagne, and bee's knees. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. If you've asked Max Cryer a question via Facebook or the email form, be standing by. Uh, Somebody... Asks why some... Oh, yeah, I've seen this in the movies. Scramble, scramble means planes flying. Yes, but it means a certain circumstance in which planes are flying. Uh The listener noted a report recently in New Zealand there was an emergency on an Auckland Harbour island and the public health service were quoted and reported as scrambling staff to the island to provide antibiotics. And she asked, why did they say scrambled? Well... We look at the word to begin with, scramble. It's been with us since the 1500s, and even then it was a modification of an older word, scrabble. Scrabble and scramble hovered between meaning to struggle, to move quickly, and to toss together randomly, as in scrambled eggs. Since then, the scramble word has moved towards these uses. Number one, to move or climb hastily, especially on on all fours, to scramble over rough ground. Number two, to struggle eagerly or unceremoniously for possession of something like scrambling for front seats at a concert. A lolly scramble. A lolly scramble. Um, Number three, to get or gather something with difficulty or in irregular ways, to scramble for a living or to scramble for lollies, as you will say. Number four, to move with urgency or panic, he scrambled to his feet. Uh Now, There's always been in various forms a sense of movement which in some cases is rapid movement. And in 1940, during World War II, the Royal Air Force was first recorded in using the term scramble to describe reacting to an immediate threat by getting military aircraft airborne as quickly as possible Mm. to intercept hostile aircraft. Now, from then on, even in post-war use, the Air Force use of the word scramble remained in use. No longer demonstrating action to prevent foreign military invasion, but often calling aircraft into use as quickly as possible because of some kind of problem which had arisen unexpectedly. And that is what the the listener heard. The listener heard about a situation of a young man attending a youth camp on a harbour island and unexpectedly falling very seriously ill of what was discovered to be suspected meningococcal disease. And it was reported that the Auckland Regional Public 
scramble staff to the island mm. to provide protective antibiotics to the other campers as quickly as possible. So actually, when you look at the history and the usage of scramble, it makes perfect sense to use in that context. Mm. Get things done in an emergency, get together, everybody pull together, scramble, get out of here. Mm. Yeah. The image that comes to mind most clearly to me is uh, some sort of black and white World War II movie when the Jerry Bombers are coming over and the siren goes off. Scramble, boys! Chocks away! Well, um, yes, that's... Go get Jerry! To pedants like me, that would be a little bit doubtful as long as the movie was set after 1940. Mm. Um, the, the term wasn't in use until 1940 and the, oh, okay. the war didn't have long to go. Oh. Okay, uh, what does champagne ham really mean? Yes, I've wondered this. So have I. I was friggin' meat, isn't it? When this question came in, I was quite relieved, actually, because I've often wondered. So I had to sort of get to work and find out. Well, champagne, background. Champagne is the name of an area of France, world famous, for producing sparkling wine. Now, the French wanted to protect the use of this name champagne to only refer to the wine made by traditional methods from grapes grown and vinified in the champagne region. So the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 to end World War I included legal restrictions on the use of that word, champagne. Mm. It had to refer only to goods from champagne. But the United States never ratified the Treaty of Versailles and at the time, 1919, America was in the midst of, of prohibition. So it paid no attention to alcohol labelling laws because there was no alcohol. It was strictly not available. No, not, is not that what they told you? Not allowed for sale. In uh, no. Not allowed for sale, I see. Oh, right, yeah, the worst speakeasies. <laughs> now, when things changed in America, local wine producers declared themselves free to legally slap the word champagne on their bottles of bubbly, much to the irritation of the wine growers in the real place champagne. But in the early uh, 200, 2006, the United States and the European Union signed a wine trade agreement and United States agreed not to use the terms considered to be semi-generic, such as champagne, burgundy or chianti, which originated and were still made in places of that name. So the Interprofessional Committee of Champagne can sue people and companies which have adopted the term champagne for their sparkling wine and have broken the law. But it isn't clear if they can use the term in connection with ham. Though this does happen, as you've noticed, Graham, so have I. Perhaps New Zealand wasn't a signature to the international agreement. Now, the main way of curing the leg meat of pigs to produce ham is to brine it with salt, sugar and a water solution. The leg bone can be removed and then the meat massaged and reshaped with netting back to the leg shape it once was so it's easy to carve. But I quote for you a food writer, one of those journalists who specialises in food structure and study, mm. a food writer in Australia recently revealed exactly how the term uh, champagne ham, how the ham sold by a major deportment style was treated before it was sold. Here are his words, quote, ham is made from pork that's been separated from the bone, washed, then injected with a saline solution which preserves the meat and adds to the overall weight. It is then also injected with sodium nitrate, sodium nitrite and potassium nitrate, which is a chemical found 
in gunpowder. Mm. This maintains the colour and it keeps the meat edible. <laughs> the meat is then churned in a giant drum to produce a meaty soup. Flavourings can be added and the ham is put into plastic bags and cooked, which glues all the individual pieces together. So, the short answer is, that which is advertised as champagne ham has never been anywhere near any champagne. So what do they call it, champagne? Well, who would know? It just, oh. it, it's a sort of glamorous... Oh, right. There's a vague... Like I- champagne TV, when a, Thingy's eye fell out. <laughs> there's a vague idea that it refers to ham which is sliced flat. Oh. Instead of buying, you know, a great big lump of ham on the bone, right. you buy it in little plastic packs. It's been through this process the Australian writer describes, and it's called champagne ham because it's in the upper level of easy attention. Right. But, of course, I don't think the Treaty of Versailles or the Union uh, International Union Agreement about the use of the word champagne has yet ari- arisen in New Zealand. It'll be interesting if it does. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard Macron complain or at least say this is something we should discuss when visiting us. Australia, you and your champagne ham, stop it. He hasn't said that, has he? They don't seem to worry about champagne if it's a piggy thing. Well, why do, Why did you say Australia? Because it's used here all the time. Oh. New Zealand has champagne or, ham. Or New Zealand. Yeah, champagne, champagne ham is commonly sold in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, I know. Has never been near any champagne. No, I know. Oh, but right. But I'm asking why the French haven't kicked up a fuss about it. That's well, my major do point. do the French know where New Zealand is? I strongly doubt it. Um, <laughs> Rainbow Warrior. They must have had some idea. Okay, all right. <laughs> Let us move on to bees. Yes, the bees need. Often hear this. Well, you hear it as an expression of the best of the best. It's praise, commendation. It's totally fanciful. Bees actually do have segmented legs, so it's remotely possible to consider the join between the segments as their knee. But there is no cap over the join. There is no knee cap on bees. So we tend to react to the word knee with an instant image of the knee cap rather than the joint inside. So it's stretching the truth a bit to describe bees as having noise, knees. But the expression was first heard in the 1700s as a synonym for smallness. A bee's knee was terribly small. Mm. In 1797, Mrs. Townley Ward wrote a letter which still survives, and she said, something cannot be as big as a bee's knee, meaning small, you see. Hence but teeth since then, um, it hasn't stopped people from referring to bee's knees all over the place. Later on, it meant this comparison for something small grew to be quite often used. Um, and then for no known reason, the bee's knees crept into a joke which relied on new ridicule and as early as 1906 this emerged in New Zealand this is a lovely bit the West Coast Times in 1906 in New Zealand reported that a cargo being carried on the SS Zealandia into New Zealand included quote a quantity of post holes three bags of treacle and seven cases of bees knees no this was you understand a joke lovely <laughs> Yes, it was. Nice one. Yes. By 1920, um, the bee's knees had become used as a description of something which was the best of its kind, along with extraordinary nonsensical concepts. The the other people said the the kippers, knickers, the snake's hips. My my brother-in-law, his was the duck's guts. Yes, that sort of thing. The oyster's garter, the eel's ankle, the elephant's instep, the flea's eyebrows, the canary's tusks. (laughs) 
the sardines' whiskers, the pig's wings, and a lot of things about cats. The cat's meow, the cat's eyebrows, the cat's tonsils, the cat's galoshes, the cat's cufflings, or the cat's roller skates. One of those survived longer than any of the others, the cat's pyjamas. You still very, very rarely hear that. But the answer to the question, bees don't actually have what qualifies as a knee, but like all those others, they are saying something or someone is in the bee's knees, meaning it as a compliment. Yeah. It's something very good. And it rhymes. It rhymes, yes. It's got what we call rhythm. Mm. Now, today... In the, we look back to an era in the early days, early years, when in New Zealand, television news wasn't able to be seen fully nationally. It had four separate outlets. And so people in the North Island didn't really get news from the South Island until a few days later. It was not possible to unite the whole country seeing the same news. Separate news was broadcast from Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. But 49 years ago today, the evening brought the whole country, the first news telecast, as they're sitting listening to you now, Graham, they will be sitting 49 years ago watching the first ever national newscast seen by all four centres simultaneously, and it's been doing so ever since. So on November the 3rd, 1969, TV news came out of nappies and took its first step from Cape Reinga to the Bluff, and from then on, New Zealanders saw national news. Oh. Is, is that broadcast preserved somewhere? You'd think it would be kind of important. I don't think television recording was mm. uh, commonly available. Mm. Was it, it Peter, the, Peter Fry or Dougal Stevenson, perhaps? Well, um, bah, bah, Phil, you see, bah, the column, what could happen is that a film, was made, a celluloid film was made of what was happening on the TV screen. No. But that was difficult and complicated. And, uh, I Were recall, you on the first broadcast? I wasn't on that one. No, I wasn't on that one. Day after? Um, what year are we talking about? 69. Uh, 69? Yeah. Um, That's what you said. <laughs> It says 69. Dad said 40. November the 3rd, 1969. Yeah, it's 49, isn't it? Yeah. 49 years? Yeah. Oh, yes, I thought you said it was in 1949. No, it was 1969. 69. I don't recall that I was actually in that news broadcast. Oh, okay. You might have been later on that night playing the piano or something. (laughs) Advertising a trumpet. Well, thank you. (laughs) I can't remember, but I'm glad you can. (laughs) Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally. Good heavens, it's, it's just so full of pathos, isn't song. it? It's a torch it, song. It is it. He what? carried the hawthorn twigs with a light on along the woman who was going to her wedding with somebody else. And oh. that's what the torch was. Oh, you want to go and give him a hug? Well, that's, that's the whole point, yes. Then torch, oh. torch singers have the ability to do this. Is too. this the saddest song in the world? Uh, we'll play it to remind you. It's not that long. It was number one for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. That's the curious thing, that people actually like torch songs. Even oh, happy well, people. It engages the emotions and yes. people can relate. And feel relieved that it isn't them. Well, it might be them. <laughs> I've seen this happen to other people's lives and now it's happening to mine, as Morrissey so brilliantly said. Max, thank you very much. Have a what it's like when you're shattered 
church where people are saying, my God, that's tough, she stood him up. No point in us remaining, we may as well go home, as I did on my own, alone again, naturally. To think that only yesterday, I was cheerful, bright and gay, looking for As if to knock me down, reality came around, and without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces, leaving me to doubt. Talk about God in His mercy, oh, if He really does exist, why did He desert me in my hour of need? I truly. songs. We're going to narrow it down to songs that were number one. It was number one for goodness me, about six weeks in the early 70s. I forget which year, doesn't matter. But of the really popular songs, I think that has to be the saddest thing constructed.